It's my pleasure to uh, introduce someone to you today who will be preaching, and uh, I have been looking forward to this for a long time. Tried to get Kyler back for several years, just worked out that he was going to be back at this time, so he will be preaching. For those of you who do not know Kyler Smith, Kyler grew up in our church, one of our, one of our own. And uh, we sent him off to, or he went to John Brown University and uh, followed that up. He was on staff at a church, by the way, there, but followed that up by going to Southern Seminary to get both his uh, MDiv and his PhD. So those of you who remember him as little Kyler Smith, running around the church. By the way, just look around you at all of the other little ones running around the church, never quite sure what God will do someday with them, using them in his plan, and he is using Kyler. Now, one of the best things that has happened to Kyler along the way was that he married Lauren. And uh, that goes without saying. So, Lauren, would you please stand? And then his precious daughter, Eliza. Eliza, you're five years old, right? Your favorite color is pink. I found that out just in a little conversation with her. And uh, we are delighted that his whole family is here today, and he will be bringing God's word. Uh, Kyler has been serving as the, let me get it right, the senior associate pastor, is that correct, Mm -hmm. at Hickory Grove Baptist Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, for how many years now? Almost 12. Good grief, almost 12 years, and uh, so uh, we're we're just delighted to hear him back. I'm finally going to get to hear some good preaching, uh, and I'm I'm really glad for that. You are too, (laughs) and uh, so we're we're just glad, just delighted that uh, God opened up this door and we could have Kyler and his family with us today. So I'm going to pray for Kyler as he comes and uh, then we're going to ask you to stand as we often do and he's going to read from God's word and he's going to share from that word. An expository sermon, that's what he does and so I'm glad that he will be sharing today. Father, we thank you for the wonder of your matchless love for us. Thank you that in our singing we have been able to, um, to share with each other. I hope it's been able to get into our hearts the matchless grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one for whom we long to come again. And so, Father, we thank you that as a body of believers called Heritage, we're grateful that we can gather together today. We pray for those watching Online, We pray for those who are not with us today for whatever reason. Father, more than anything else, as we will open your word now, I pray for an anointing to be upon what Kyler has prepared and uh, what he will share with us. I pray for our hearts and our ears to be open and to be anointed as well because we want to receive the word implanted so that it will bring forth much fruit. So, Father, we look forward now with great anticipation to what you will teach us today, and we pray this name 
of our reigning and coming Savior, even Jesus. Amen. Now would you stand as Kyler will come and read the word to us. Thank you, Marty. Well, if you have a Bible, I invite you to take it and turn, if you will, to the first chapter of Luke's Gospel, Luke 1, as I trust you see in the bulletin today. As you're turning to Luke 1, bear with me as you stand for a moment. Let me use this opportunity to just say a few things. Rare is it a privilege for a pastor to get to come home to his home church. This is very rare. It's rare for a guy to get to go to the church where he was saved, and I was saved in this church, where I was baptized in those waters by Jim Jackson, where I was discipled by countless numbers of you, a, a most significant one being the ageless pastor, Chad Kaczynski. Y'all know Chad looks the exact same today as he did 25 years ago when he was my sixth grade student pastor. It's unbelievable. It's rare to get to come back to the church where you were called to the ministry. This is going to sound a little odd, but it was actually on these steps as I was walking down in 2005, shortly after Brother Marty came to our church, that the Lord used, honestly, an offhand remark he made to me, the Lord used that remark to stir in my soul something that I had never dreamed of doing. It's a privilege to get to come back home to a church like this that has indelibly marked me. I've pastored now for about 15 years. It's hard to believe it's been 15 years since I've been at this church, and a lot of stuff has changed. Everything looks different. It looks wonderful here. Y'all changed your pastor. We're no longer Marty. It looks like we got Bono as a pastor here. <laughs> he told me I could make that joke. Nice glasses, Marty. You look good. It's a distinct privilege to be back home. So let's get to the business at hand. Luke 1, if you found it, let's read beginning in verse 26. Marty told me I could preach what I wanted as long as we stuck with the Christmas theme, and so I thought I'd bring us to the Annunciation. It's a fitting text on this Sunday before the Christmas Eve, Christmas Day weekend. Here now the words of our God as recorded by the evangelist Luke, beginning in verse 26, and I'll read down through verse 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And he was sent to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting well, this might be. And the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you're going to bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel what any sane woman would, how can this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it 
be to me according to your word. And the angel departed her. Why don't you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, I'm asking that you would come now and by the power of your spirit, pierce the hearts of your people. My own heart, Lord, as this word is proclaimed, would you minister to me and all who can hear me. In particular, Lord, I'm asking that you would graciously come and drive away the fog of familiarity that I trust is overshadowing many with just another Christmas text, another Christmas sermon. And in particular, for those who are drowning in doubt, I'm asking that you would come and rescue them, pull them out of the miry bog and help them to stand on the firm foundation of this supernatural, legitimately inexplicable, miraculous text. Open our eyes, I pray, to behold wonderful things from your word. And I'm asking this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I wonder, do you believe in miracles? Do you? Now, I'm not talking about those mere marvels that we often are inclined to describe as a miracle. You know, the old TV commercial, the miracle drug, or, you know, we won that miracle game. I can't believe it's a miracle. We pulled it off. It's a poor use of the word, as you well know. I'm talking about the definition of a miracle, that which has no explanation apart from a supernatural intervening God. Do you believe in that kind of a miracle? And the reason I'm, I'm pressing this is because if you do, you, you need to count the cost. If you believe in the otherwise unbelievable, if you believe in miracles, you are at this moment standing in the face of virtually every academic circle you might find yourself in. Ours is a day where almost every classroom of higher education, even in so-called Christian classrooms of higher education, rarely will you find a room in which you are not positively drinking in what's called naturalism, which is this overwhelming view that there is a natural explanation for anything and everything we see, taste, touch, smell. It is something that just happened. And to stand and with integrity say, I believe that there is something supernatural that could occur, that could defy all the laws of physics, is candidly seen by a great many to be, well, insane. Are you prepared to stand in the face of academic circles? Are you prepared to find yourself alone in social circles? Ours is a day where, politically speaking, to say you believe in miracles will malign you because ours is a culture in which morality and right and wrong and justice and injustice is being defined culturally. It's kind of whatever the majority thinks in any given moment. And to claim that there is some sort of Truth claim, there is some sort of gold standard, there is some sort of righteousness that transcends what we just concoct in our heads is viewed as bigoted, as backwards. Are you prepared for that? Students, are you prepared to stand in the face of this to say with integrity, I believe in miracles and I hate to say it and praise God, I don't actually have to in a room like this, in a dear church like this, but you will find yourself not only standing in the face of political circles, of academic circles, 
even in most theological circles today, to say you believe in miracles will invite a quiet, although it's becoming less and less quiet, mockery. I can't tell you how many classrooms of higher education I've been in and even been able to teach in from time to time where there are students who have been discipled, and that's the word for it, discipled in their classroom to believe that this book need not the supernatural. They look at it and deconstruct it and try to recreate a text that's more palatable to we modern minds. And so, like Thomas Jefferson of old, they come and they cut out all the supernatural until they can at last find a book that would at least give them some decent respectability in all those academic and social and political circles they so long to be approved in. And my friends, if that's you, I plead you hear me. Christianity is manifestly miraculous. The Bible is blatantly supernatural. To deny it is to deny most of it. If you throw away the supernatural, if you deny the miraculous, you need to throw away the creation account where God speaks out of nothing, something comes into being. To deny the miraculous is to deny most of the book of Genesis. Tale after tale, as you go from page after page, you will find that which defies common sense. You'll go to the book of Exodus. You'll have to throw away half of the book of Exodus. Try as you might to create rational, naturalistic explanations for the plagues, for that burning bush that never burned. You're going to find yourself puzzled, scratching your head, and then beginning to wonder, can this book be trusted at all? which is what's happening in classroom after classroom. If you don't believe in the miraculous, my friends, throw away the story of Balaam and his talking donkey. Toss out that story of the brazen serpent lifted up in the wilderness, and God said, if you but look at the serpent, look and live, you will indeed be healed. You're going to have to throw it away. You can throw away Jonah and the whale. You can throw away Naaman being healed in that river. You can throw away David defeating Goliath against all odds. If you throw away the miraculous, Throw away that Red Sea being parted. Throw away that miraculous manna and quail coming to God's people. Throw away the Jordan River being parted. Throw away those walls of Jericho that come a-tumbling down. Throw away that sun standing still in the book of Joshua. Throw it all away. Throw away Samson and all of his miraculous ministry as a judge. Throw away Daniel and the lion's den. Those three Hebrew guys and the fiery furnace. Just throw it all away. The truth is, this is a miraculous book. And if you cannot stand and in one accord proclaim, I believe in miracles, you not only have to cut out most of the Old Testament. It's when you get to the greatest miracle of all, the sum and substance of the Christian faith, the heart of why we and countless millions throughout the ages have gathered in rooms like this. What C.S. Lewis called the great Grand miracle of all miracles. The miracle in our text today. The highest of all miracles. If you can't swallow a miracle, this text means nothing to you. And my friends, I pray that you will, by faith, throw your weight upon the otherwise unbelievable. Indeed, I want you to see that in our text today, this highest of miracles, this grand miracle of miracles, the incarnation of Christ, Jesus being virgin born, I want you to see that the call of Christmas, this great story we all know and love, really is in essence to believe the otherwise unbelievable. Do, do you 
Are you prepared to believe the otherwise unbelievable? The call of Christmas is the call to believe with Gabriel that nothing is impossible with God. Do you realize that a naturalized Christianity is no Christianity at all? If you take out the supernatural, you've gutted it. It's like taking the blood out of the vascular system, taking the marrow out of the bones. It may look like it's still there, but it is of no use. My friends, this is a call to not only believe with Gabriel that nothing is impossible with God, it's a call to believe with Mary, who so succinctly and wonderfully proclaimed her faith at the very end of this passage in verse 38. Let this crazy, unbelievable thing you've told me, God, let it be according to your word. Are you prepared to say with Mary, oh God, would you just do as you see fit? I do not know what tomorrow holds. This makes no sense to me. I am trusting. I am standing even when I don't understand. Help me by faith to trust, to believe the otherwise unbelievable. I want you to see in this miracle. Mary, let's just use Mary. She's a lot like us. She's a person, unlike the angel Gabriel. How could Mary have said such a thing? Truly, how could she, upon hearing an insane thing, you are pregnant and you had no way of physically becoming pregnant. How could she just in faith say, let this be according to your word, O God? Was she just some unusual paragon of faith? What was she doing? She was actually standing on three pillars, so to speak. Three major truth claims. Three miracles I want you to see in this text. That if you can stand on them, you will find that it will grant you a firm foundation to stand on the Christmas season and not drown in the rush of sentimentality that all of us are so prone to. You will, by God's grace, be able to drown out all that sentimentality when the weight and wonder of the supernatural reason for the season, which is the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin. I want you to see in this text, there are three miracles we detect, detect here. And if you can grip them, they will stir your faith, strengthen your soul for the days, weeks, months, and years to come. Now, the first one I want you to mark down is note with me in this text that Christ came by a miracle. I want you to see this. This was a stunning thing that happened because the testimony of the scripture from the very beginning is that there is one who is to come. They were anticipating, longing, just as we were singing right before I came up to preach, come thou long expected Jesus. It had been expected for quite some time. Since the earliest days in the Garden of Eden, when God, upon cursing mankind for turning in rebellious act in that garden, he promised in the third chapter of Genesis and the 15th verse that he was going to one day send somebody to come and crush the head of the serpent. And the rest of the Bible is one great Where's Waldo story trying to find who is the one to come. Who's going to be the Messiah? Is it going to be Adam and Eve's son, uh, Cain. No, he kills his brother Abel. Not Cain, clearly not Abel. Maybe it'll be Seth. It doesn't end up being Seth. Is it Noah? Doesn't end up being Noah. Is it Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? No, doesn't end up being Joseph. Well, no, Joseph's not ending up being the one. Is it one of the judges? Well, none of them. They're all kind of sorry guys. Does it end up being one of the kings? No, no, no. Does it end up being one of the kings of all the divided kingdom? Well, no, really none of those. What about all those prophets? Was it Isaiah or Jeremiah, Ezekiel, maybe Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum? Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, they just keep waiting. Who is going to be the one who is at last going to fulfill this promise until at last 
silence. Their last hope, Malachi, falls off the pages of history. And now they begin to wonder, is God a forgetful God? Is his arm too short? Has he failed? Has his promise to us failed? Who will finally come and free us, deliver us from the curse of sin and death until at last there is a voice that breaks the silence? It's a voice as one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, the famed John the Baptist who comes as the forerunner of our Messiah. And this Messiah comes unlike anybody heretofore. Unlike all the other suspected messiahs of old, there was something about this seed born of a woman that they didn't expect. On the one hand, this seed born of the woman, this Jesus, he came in a most unlikely place. Verse 26 tells us he came to the city of Galilee, Named Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, reared in Nazareth. It was a backwater town, not where you would expect the promised Messiah to have come. It was the last place you would expect the one who for thousands of years had been the hope of the people of Israel. Not only did he come to an unlikely place, a place, he came to an unlikely people because it says he was born to a Parthenon, that's a virgin, and it means precisely what all of us know the word to mean. He was born to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph. Betrothal, it's an unusual word, we don't use it in our common parlance today. To be betrothed is a little bit weightier than to be engaged. It is similar, but it in that culture was a little bit more closely wed such that a betrothal to be broken was tantamount to a divorce. Unlike in our culture where you can kind of break off an engagement and it really just has minimal ripple effects, it would have had greater ones. It was as if she was married. All that was lacking was that the marriage had not been consummated in full union. She was engaged in a most serious sense to this young man named Joseph. She was a very young girl, most would assume. Joseph was probably a young guy, probably still trying to grow a beard at that point. A most unlikely place, a most unlikely people. And they came in a most unlikely way. This was a most unlikely plan God had. Because it says that he said to the angel Gabriel, to this young couple, to Mary in particular, that you are going to conceive a child, which is immediately shocking, which is why she asked the question anybody would. How can this be? And then he puts a finer point on it, which has stunned people for the ages. He said, here's how this is going to happen. The Holy Spirit of God is going to come upon you, verse 35 says. He is going to overshadow you. A piskiazo, a word that... Honestly, it's hard to define. It's hard to draw a parallel, but it is this overshadowing. It is this overcoming. It is this unusual word that would be reserved for the Lord God Almighty's work alone, similar to what happened at the transfiguration when Jesus was resplendently changed before people. So too, in this overshadowing, the Spirit did what only the Spirit could do, causing a veritable miracle to occur something that had never happened heretofore. Do you recognize on that day, in that moment, it was a shot heard around the world. When the Spirit of God conceived a child in the Virgin Mary that had never, ever, ever, ever occurred before. 
Which is why I want you to not think that this was a miracle birth the way you've probably heard of some other miracle births. I, I did a little research and I discovered there are several births that most of us would probably sloppily use the language miracle and be like, my word, that was a miracle. For example, I learned that the lady that had the most births ever, this lady had 69 children. Can you imagine? 69 children. There was one lady who had nine children at, in one term. Can you imagine carrying nine children? I think that's called like a non-tuplet. I didn't even know that was a thing. There was one lady, my word, she had a child. i got to look down at my notes because it's really that hard to believe. I promise you, I found this in multiple sources, that she delivered a child that was 23 pounds. There's a miracle. The smallest child was 14 pounds, 8 ounces. A miracle. Or is it? The Bible actually is replete with examples of miraculous births too. Time doesn't permit me to go into all of the details, but just mark in your margin briefly Isaac being miraculously born to Abraham and Sarah. Or just consider the fact that Isaac and uh, Rebekah, they had a miraculous birth with Jacob and Esau. Joseph was essentially a miraculous birth. You had Samson essentially be miraculously born. Most of us remember uh, the famed story of Samuel being miraculously born, or even John the Baptist himself. You recall his parents were long barren waiting for a child. The Bible is filled with all these stories, but there is something that made the birth of Jesus so other. This was no mere marvel. This was a veritable miracle. A manifest miracle. Christ alone was virgin born. The virgin birth is critical. And I wonder how many of you are thinking, is it though? Like that's good, but I've got, there's some smart people I know that have questioned whether or not you really need to hang your hat on that. Do I have to believe this? Does it actually matter if you hang your faith on this virgin birth? What about that crazy preacher guy I've seen on TV that said, if I discover one day in heaven that God had an earthly father, Jesus, I should say, had an earthly father named Larry. It's not going to really affect my faith much. Friends, it would affect my faith because the virgin birth is the heart of the gospel of Jesus. He came by a miracle. And you may be wondering, that's a big claim to make. Why do you say this? Why do you say it? Is it just because the text tells you, which candidly is good enough for me, but there's more than just the fact that the text makes clear she was a virgin. One of the reasons why you need to settle in your soul that Jesus Christ came by a miracle is because secondly, I want you to see that this same Christ came for a miracle. And this miracle he came for would have been impossible had he not come by a miracle. Just consider with me the high responsibility of naming the name above all names. I remember when Lauren and I had our little girl, Eliza, I thought, my word, that's a big responsibility to name a child. She'll have this name till the day she goes to be with the Lord. That is going to be so close to her identity, we better get this right. Let's get her a good name. Imagine the high responsibility of naming the name above all names, the name of, uh, of whose more words have been written, the name that has had more songs sung of, the name that has had more paintings painted of, 
The name that has had more statuary chiseled of. The name that has been dwelled upon, thought upon, probably uttered by the tongue of man more. Jesus Christ, the name above all names. Imagine that responsibility. And the good news is Mary and Joseph were off the hook. They didn't have to name him because the angel came and announced the name, which is why we call this passage the Annunciation. It is, in other words, the time when the angel Gabriel came and announced who he was and why he came. Jesus, a name that goes in one ear and out the other because we hear it so many times. But in the Hebrew, Jesus, Yeshua, means Yahweh saves. When he said, you shall call his name Jesus, he was telling us that this one who came by a miracle came for a miracle. He was saying that this Jesus was coming to do what no man, woman, or child heretofore had been able to do. Jesus, in fact, Matthew gives a finer point, and he tells us in chapter 1 and verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from Rome, from themselves, from their sins, which should immediately have caused many upon hearing this, to be puzzled. For few were anticipating this. This isn't what they wanted. They weren't expecting a Savior from their sins. They wanted a Savior from their problems. They weren't expecting a King of Kings. They would have just been satisfied with a King. They weren't expecting the Lord of Lords. They just really wanted a Lord other than Caesar. They were waiting for something else. And I want you to see that the reason this annunciation is so crucial to our faith is the angel Gabriel in that moment was reorienting the minds and hearts of God's people both then and now to see that this one who came by a miracle, virgin born, he came for a miracle. It was a miracle work, a miracle mission he was on, something that was impossible for anybody before to have done. Just consider with me. Step back with me for a moment. Every man, woman, and child is what we describe as naturally born. Now, we know what that literally means. We're all physically born to a mother and a father. Every person who's ever lived has had one, save Jesus Christ. We've all come from a human mother and father. Theologically, biblically speaking, there is a great implication of being born to a mom and dad. It means that you are a long descendant of your first father, Adam. And unfortunately, you, me, and all creation are consequently born in sin. It is called original sin. It is a nature. You don't have to be taught to be bad. It is endemic to who you are. If you don't believe me, come with me after service down the children's hall and I'll open the one-year-old's room and you'll see them biting each other. We'll close that. We'll go to the two-year-old's room where they're stealing blocks and I'll close that door, go to the three-year-old room where they're starting to whisper and steal from one another. Nobody's teaching them. I hope none of you are teaching your kids to pull each other's hair. This is endemic to who we are. It is indeed our fallen nature. And the trick is being born with this fallen nature makes it such that we always willfully choose that which dishonors our maker. We are by nature children of wrath, the Bible says, like the rest of mankind. We have a heart that is prone to enthrone ourselves. We don't have to be taught to turn our back on our maker. We enthrone ourselves. And it gets a little worse. 
The Bible actually teaches there is absolutely nothing you can do about it. You cannot change yourself. You cannot will yourself to choose him. You cannot will yourself to be better. You are hopelessly lost. You are rightfully judged. You are worthy of eternal punishment. I am worthy of eternal condemnation from my holy, righteous maker. Had Jesus not come. But the scripture teaches that somebody came and broke that pattern, that chain. Finally, there was one who came who was not born like you and me. He was born of a woman, but he was not born from the seed of a man. It's actually a miraculous language, the seed of the woman, as Galatians 4, 4 says. There's no such thing as a seed of the woman. That doesn't make biological sense, but it does in God's economy because God had come and done what he had never done heretofore. He caused the Spirit of God to come and work a miracle. Jesus was born, virgin born. He was supernaturally born for we who were naturally born so that you and I might at last be supernaturally born again. Do you realize that the incarnation makes possible salvation? Had it not been for the virgin birth, we who were born naturally would never be reborn supernaturally. It would be an utter impossibility. Jesus had to come the way he came to break the curse of sin and death so that he could live the life we never live and die the death that we deserve and be mightily and triumphantly resurrected from the dead so that if simply by the sheer act of miraculous faith, if we just believe he is who he says he is and he did what he said he did, we will, it's a miracle, be saved from this curse. Praise God that he who came by a miracle came for a miracle. And so let's conclude our study then today by just meditating on who this Jesus is of whom we speak. Who is this one who came by a miracle and came for a miracle? It is thirdly and finally, he who came as a miracle. I want you to see that this miraculously born individual, this miraculous mission he was given, he himself was a walking miracle. He was a miracle. Look at it. Gabriel almost can't hold it in. When Gabriel announces, you shall call his name Jesus, it's like he can't get a hold of himself. And all of a sudden, he just starts to say all these things about him. He says, for example, he's going to be great. He is going to be the son of the Most High God. What could he mean by this? How could he be the son of God if he was the son of Mary? He was in this moment showing the world and you and I that this miracle child he would have a miraculous identity, one that was impossible apart from the intervention of God. He was going to be the son of man and at the same time, the son of God. Now for you mathematicians, that doesn't add up. How does that work? How can you be 100% a man and 100% a God? Theologians throughout the ages have beat their head against the wall attempting to figure this out. So we just came up with a technical word that makes no sense to most people. It's called the hypostatic union of God, of Jesus Christ. That's a good word that you can learn and maybe get the question right on Jeopardy. A hypostatic union. It is the miraculous mixture of Jesus 
in his two natures as God and man, human and divine. And the reason we need to hold these apparently contradictory twin truths up and just let the tension rest on our shoulders is because it was by this miraculous identity that he was able to accomplish what he came to accomplish. His miracle mission was only made possible because he was miraculous in his identity. He himself was a walking miracle. For just consider with me, in his very humanity, as the Son of Man, He could sympathize with our weaknesses. He could be tempted in every which way as we are. He could, in other words, know our pain. He, in other words, could live the life that we could never live. He could, in other words, physically die the death that we righteously deserved as rebel sinners. He took on for us the full burden of humanity, but... I must clarify, as you so well know, he didn't just live any old life. He lived it sinlessly. First time the world had ever seen it. One who perfectly upheld the law of God. He didn't die just any old death. How many of you have known anybody upon their death to see the whole world convulse upon the crying out of these immortal words, Tetelestai, it is finished. As the groaning cry of Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who amongst us has ever conceived of one whom upon his death you would see these mighty, miraculous things occur naturally and supernaturally? The dead being raised from the graves, earthquakes, the temple veil being rendered in two. This was no mere man. He who lived the life we could never live, he lived it sinlessly because he was not a mere man. He was the God-man. He who died the death that we deserve, he didn't die it the way you and I would. He died it supernaturally because he was no mere man. He was the God-man. And he has not stayed dead and buried like all of our relatives before us has. He is not dead. He is risen. He is reigning, resurrected, and he is this moment alive, bodily, resurrected in heaven, whence he will one day come again and take us back. My friends, this one is a veritable miracle. He is miraculous in identity. He is to be called great, the son of the most high God. He is also miraculous. Just hear it with me. He is miraculous in his authority. For Gabriel says next, he is going to have the throne of David, his father David, and he's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And imagine how much hope that phrase would have given those initial recipients, and how perplexed they would have been just 33 years later. We thought this guy was going to reign like David of old. We thought this guy was going to reign forever and ever. This, he's dead. He died. Some throne, some savior. What happened? What did happen? I'll tell you what happened. All the prophecies of the Old Testament were beginning to be fulfilled in this moment. Prophecies of Isaiah, prophecies of Adam and Abraham of old, prophecies of David and others were all coalescing in this simple statement uttered by the angel Gabriel. This one is fulfilling everything I have pointed to, and he's not going to fulfill it the way you expected. He is going to come 
He's going to be killed. And then the world is going to rock when I raise him from the dead. And upon his ascension, he is going to tell you why he is in truth the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Do you remember the last thing he uttered before our Lord resurrected, before he ascended to the Father? His last words were, All authority in heaven and on earth are given me. In that moment, Jesus was saying, I am in truth the King of kings, though I might not have looked like it. I am in truth the Lord of lords, though I might not have looked like it. I am Jesus, the Savior from your sins. Jesus is a miracle. He is miraculous in his identity. He is miraculous in his authority. He is showing himself to be in truth, the name that really is above all names. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end. He is the one who was and is and is to come. He is the one who upholds the entire universe by the word of his power. He is the one whom we and all the angels of heaven will sing to forevermore. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing, honor, glory, and might forever and ever. This Jesus is a miracle. But is he a megalomaniac? Because it seems, maybe it just strikes you like, is he, is he worthy of this? Should he receive this? Should he actually have all authority? It almost defies our, you know, our democratic senses that nobody should actually want to have all authority. I should be able to be my own authority, right? Isn't that what it means to be a, an American? My friends, the reason we will gladly fall on our faces and sing to him forevermore is because of this simple word we find in verse 35, right at the end. There is a word that we can describe Jesus as that I long for the day when it is described, describes me as, and that day is coming. For that word is holy. This miracle is a holy one. He is miraculous, not merely in his identity and his authority. He is miraculous in his very purity. He is without spot or blemish. He is in truth perfect in every way. Just consider with me a moment all of your heroes. Who would your hero be? And just consider how the mightiest hero in your mind this moment just fades into oblivion in the light of this one's glory and grace. He, it, he stacks the cards against all of us. It, just, it ends the notion of thinking highly of anybody when you put it against Jesus himself. He is in a league of his own. Do you realize that even atheistic people recognize there is something unusually alluring about this Jesus? Even in the darkness and blindness of sin, there are scholars throughout the world who can't help but say there is something otherworldly about this one. They may call him a wise man. They may call him a apparent miracle worker. They may call him somebody who is a moral paragon. 
But he was no mere wise man. He was no mere moral paragon. He was no mere so-called miracle worker like the huckster you might see on TV. He was in truth the God-man. He was holy in every way, shape, or form, which is why we will not merely sing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We will sing forevermore. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with your glory. Do you realize that this Jesus is a walking miracle? He came by a miracle. He came for a miracle. And he came as a miracle. And I wonder... Do you believe in miracles? Do you? Some of you today don't. I recognize in a room this size, there are surely dozens who in truth would say, I I, I don't. And if that's you, I, I plead you hear the sincerity of my voice. You can and I plead you will this day because there is coming a day when you will. One day we will all stand before our maker. Every knee will bow. And in that moment, you will no longer be a skeptic. You will no longer be an agnostic. You will meet your miracle maker. And you will know with full assurance, not by faith, but by sight, you will know that there is such a thing as miracles. And I'm pleading with you this moment. When that day comes, one of two things will happen you will either naturally fall, which is what every person who has ever encountered God has done. They all fall over as if dead. And you will stand before your maker utterly exposed, condemned, naked as it were. The Bible uses that graphic language. You will stand utterly exposed before your maker. You will have no words on your lips. You will have nothing in your hand. You will fall to your face. That might happen, but praise God, if by faith you trust in Jesus this day, And wonderful miracle will happen that moment. The last miracle you will taste. And that miracle is this. You who should naturally fall will supernaturally stand in his presence. Jude beautifully portrays this for us when he says in the last verses of his short book, now unto Jesus who is able to keep you and me from stumbling, but he will make us stand in his presence. Blameless, which is insane. Blameless. You will stand before the holy of holies, blameless and with great joy. God's joy, your joy, and all the joy of the angels singing in celebration as they did in that famed parable of the prodigal son, rejoicing that that lost one was found. You will stand that moment blameless, but that will only happen if this day, this side of eternity, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has indeed raised him from the dead. Friends, it's a miracle. You don't have to do a tap dance. All you have to do is with the simplicity of childlike faith say, I believe, help my unbelief. And so dear church, I recognize that though there are some who may not believe, I trust most of us in great accord could in unison say, preacher, I do believe in miracles. And if that is you, just consider anew with me the miracle of it all. I pray this day that the supernaturalism of Christmas will drown out all the sentimentality that is encroaching in your home and in your heart. I pray that you would see that the call of Christmas and the call of Christ to you this day is to believe the unbelievable. Would you join me as we pray?
And with your heads bowed, may I speak just briefly a word to you and conclude our service with a word of prayer. You must believe in this grand miracle of miracles. It is not enough for your spouse to, your mother to, your child to. You must believe. And so in the silence of your seat this day, I invite you to cry out, Oh God, I believe. Help my unbelief. The call of Christ to you this day is to believe the otherwise unbelievable. Believe that he really is who he says he is. He came by a miracle, virgin born. He came for a miracle to bring about new birth. And he came as a miracle, fully God, fully man, matchless, miraculous in his identity and authority and purity. And so confess with your mouth this moment, I believe this, O God. And ask him by his grace to so move in your soul this day that all the sentimentality that is seeking to crowd out your soul this Christmas would be drowned out in the weight and wonder of the supernatural profundity of Christmas. Praise God that Jesus came. Father in heaven, we praise you for Jesus. We praise you for Christmas. And we ask, O Lord, that you would so move in the hearts of all who can hear my voice. Move in my own heart, I pray. That we could, with full assurance of faith and in one accord, say in unison, we believe the otherwise unbelievable. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Christmas. Be honored as we sing. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.